Psalm, Psalm 131. You know, when I was a kid, I remember I had a lot of good childhood memories. Um, I was a pretty carefree kid, kind of reckless, like a lot of normal kids. Um, and uh, I didn't have really too many worries. Uh, I think about it. Uh, my, my mom and dad, they worked. Uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of love and a lot of good food. And uh, I was warm and clothed. Uh, I didn't lack anything I needed. And one of the things that I think uh, I look back to now as, as an adult is that um, you know, I didn't have money worries. There were no, no money worries. I didn't have to think about uh, what kind, of, you know, where my next meal was going to come from. Um, was the rent going to be paid? Uh, I did not have those worries. Now, why didn't I have those worries? Now, I know there are a lot of kids in the world that can't relate to this, but maybe some of you can in here. And I didn't, I didn't have those worries because I had a parents who took care of me. And um, what's interesting is, as we get older, what do adolescents long for? Can't wait until I'm 18. God, I can't wait to get out of my house. Right? How about adults? What do adults long for? Gosh, I wish I could go back <laughs> to when mom and dad took care of me. Can you relate? I mean, have you ever experienced that? Yeah, it, it's, we're, we are fickle human beings. It's, it's as if we are never satisfied with the station in life we find ourselves in. Yes, okay. So, um, and, and, and the issue is this. Our children, as we celebrated our kids this morning and as we acknowledge them and especially some of the more little ones that aren't in the room right now one of the things that uh, I, I envy about them is that they really don't have a care in the world and in Psalm 131 the title of, the, of this message is An Invitation to Trust in the Lord Like a Child. And, and I think God wants to uh, encourage us in here this morning to look to Him as a child looks to their parents for their needs. Now this psalm addresses us today as a reminder of what it is like to be trusting in God as our kids. Now let me give you a little historical background here. This psalm, Psalm 131, is part of 14 psalms. Psalms 120 to 134. And they're called songs of ascent. They are called songs of degrees. And what's going on here is that the Israelites three times a year are going up to Jerusalem to Zion to celebrate three specific feasts. 
They are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And one of the things God always, always uh, does, He doesn't miss an occasion to remind His people of who He is and what He has done. And that's the background here of this psalm. And as far as the date, we're not completely sure. Uh, most certainly, David is the author. But before I continue, let's pray. Lord, I ask that you, by your Spirit, would minister the truths that are in your Word. And I ask God that you would comfort the afflicted and afflict those who are comfortable. God, I ask that you would, by all means, penetrate our hearts this morning, our minds and confront us with the truth that we're not ultimate, therefore we don't have to live lives of anxiety that ignore You. But because You are ultimate, You invite us to come and trust You like a child. And we ask that You would do a work in here that lasts forever in our lives. And I pray this, Lord, for your name's sake and our joy in you. Amen. Now, David, the author of this psalm, um, he learned a lot about trusting God. And it started early in his life. Uh, listen to 1 Samuel 17, 31-37. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fall on account of him, of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he, Goliath, has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth and when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, let, let me give a little bit of background here. Saul, King Saul, is going to be replaced by David as the king of Israel. And Saul, the difference between Saul and David is not that they were sinners. They were both sinners. But Saul's disposition in life was more to care about what people thought, how he looked, he did not care about, central to his life was not the word of the Lord. Whereas David, he was a sinner. And, and, and the Bible is filled with accounts of things that he did. He was a bloodshedded, he was a man that, he was a warrior. He shed a lot of blood. He did a lot of bad things. But 
He is called a man after God's own heart. What was it about him that made him a man after God's own heart? Central to David's life was the Lord God, the the Word of God as revealed through the prophets. And he understood that without God's mercy, he had no hope. So he would throw himself on the mercy of God. And his journey of trusting in the Lord, as Teresa pointed out, the word Lord, when it's capitalized in our Bibles, is the word Yahweh, which is the self-existent one. Well, this self-existent one, when that word comes to mind uh, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it always goes back to the Exodus, where God rescued Israel out of the most powerful nation in the known world, Egypt. And the most powerful ruler who was Pharaoh in those days was utterly, completely humiliated by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is on Mount Sinai where this Lord reveals who He is to His people that He is in covenant with, rescued them out of the Exodus, and He says, I am the Lord. The Lord. Merciful. Compassionate. Slow to anger. This is the God that David was following. And this is the God that David was learning to trust in. Saul was an enemy of David. For over ten years after David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, he still did not go on the throne of Israel. For over ten years, he's being pursued by King Saul who wants to kill him. Who wants to do away with David. Why? Because he was jealous of David. The people loved David. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his ten thousands. They were singing rap songs about the kings. So what did David do? Already said he was a man after God's own heart, but he was a great sinner. This psalm depicts this great sinner who not only in his past experience and present circumstances, but even in his days that are ahead that he doesn't know what lies ahead, he is demonstrating and expressing trust, a childlike trust in this God who is ultimate. And here's what the text reads. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I've composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And and there's two major thoughts I want to look at here. First of all, it's, it's David's profession of trust in the Lord, and then David's exhortation 
to trust in the Lord, both to Israel and to us. First of all, David's profession of trust in the Lord. What you have in these two verses is a, a negative and a positive relationship where David's thoughts and his actions express his situation in life. First of all, in his thoughts. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Now, first and foremost, he addresses the Lord. Recall that these are songs or a psalm of ascents. These are the processions. The Israelites are going to Jerusalem to worship God. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds them of the Exodus and how they had to make haste to have the bread, don't have enough time to cook it, make it unleavened, you're leaving Egypt. It is a reminder of the provision of God in the great rescue of Israel. And they are, in the, this feast, they are worshiping. They are rejoicing. They are celebrating the great deliverance of God. So he's saying, Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Understand the, the creator-creature distinction here and throughout the Scriptures. Understand that when you come in contact and you behold and you contemplate who God is and who you are as a creature, all of a sudden, when you're in right relationship with this God, you can do nothing but be humbled. This address, Lord, He addresses this same Lord in Psalm 23 as His shepherd. The word Yahweh, the Lord, is the covenant name of God that God revealed to Moses in, Psalm, uh, in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, which says, God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What David is doing is he's looking back in his present toward his future. And at the center of that is the Lord who rescues from slavery. The Lord who rescued Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Now notice that he says, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. The heart is not proud. When he's talking about his heart, he is talking about that he is not uh, arrogant at the very core of his being, the seat of his emotions, his, his, his feelings, his will, his intellect. It is not opposing God. What is a haughty eyes? What is pride? Essentially what this is is an attitude that overvalues self and simultaneously undervalues others. And, and I think this is a challenge for all of us in one way or another. It is something that's continually uh, facing us daily in how we, we deal in, in our relationship with God, 
Do we overvalue ourselves over God? But specifically, how do we deal with one another? How do we deal in our relationships, in our marriages? How do we deal with our children? How do, how do, how do siblings deal with one another? How do workers and co-workers get along? A lot of the things that take place is really a manifestation of pride because there's way too much overvaluing of ourselves and the denigrating of other people. This is an, an idiom for arrogance where somebody is presumptuously takes things for granted. And you know what? God hates pride. Proverbs 6.17, it's part of his God's hate list. He hates pride. He hates the high brow. He hates it. And we've got to deal with it all the time in one way or another. Listen to Proverbs 18.12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Now, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, really, really uh, uh, brings this um, to a real, real clear head. Listen to this. Paul is talking to the Philippian church. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he goes on and says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh. And Jesus Christ humbled himself laid aside his divine prerogatives, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, God highly exalted him, gave him a name that is above every name, Yahweh, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Paul says, work out your salvation. Well, what's your salvation? The outflow of what's been given to you, Christian, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You know what part of working out that salvation is? It happens in community. It happens in considering others. It happens here in our attitude toward the other brother or sister in Christ who we tend to think we are better than them in one way or another. But Jesus Christ, the supreme example, the Creator, if He did that, who are we not to follow in His example? I mean, really. What did Jesus say? He, says, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Greatness in the kingdom doesn't happen by pointing the finger and telling everybody what to do. 
Greatness in the kingdom is serving. And it doesn't matter how you are serving. It really doesn't. Psalm 31, 23 says, O love the Lord, all you His godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. David knows this. David knows that God will deal with those who are proud and he humbles himself. What God hates, David hates. What about you? Do you find yourself loving what God loves? Do you find yourself hating what He hates? You know, we can't think crooked and walk straight. You know, the fact is, the way we think steers our lives. It just does. So not only are we looking at his thoughts, but David in his actions, he says, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Most likely than not, he's referring to the time when he was a youth shepherding his father's flocks. Now, when he talks about, I do not involve or concern myself, it could be rendered this way. I do not presume to walk or be preoccupied with being great or, or achieving great accomplishments. Think about it. We're talking about someone that God had anointed as king. And he was young. Something was taking place. Imagine what he went through. Great matters or things too difficult for me. What can they be? I, I think they have to do with either him coming to rule in Israel or him confronting and dealing with difficult situations that, he, that just baffled him as a leader. Let's think about this for a second. David was anointed king of Israel. He walks with God, talks with God, has amazing experiences with God, and one day he finds himself as the servant of Saul the king and he kills Goliath. He kills Goliath. He probably, like so many youngsters and a lot of oldsters, um, uh, have uh, uh, you know uh, desires to do grandiose things. Can anybody relate to that? I mean, I can. You, you want to make your mark in life. You, you want to be known. You, you, you know that's really important to you. And and and. and for some of us, it consumes us. And if it consumes us, for a lot of people, it destroys them. When things do not go according to plan, when life seems like it took a completely different turn than you anticipated in your early 20s. What do you do? 
I mean, David was anointed by Saul, uh, by uh, uh, Samuel the prophet, but he didn't come to the throne for a long, long time. What's, what is he? What does he have to practice? I'm going to get to that. Meanwhile, after David gets all of these uh, um, uh, victories in battle, when, when he slew Goliath, that was huge. Nobody, nobody was going to confront Goliath. And this young man does. This young man who knows God. Well, Saul didn't like that. What does Saul do? Man, he is pursuing him, wanting to kill him. What did David do? Can you imagine? Do you think he might, may have been outraged? Do you think he may have been confused? What's going on here? Do you think he expressed depression? Deep, deep sorrow? What in the heck is going on? I mean, the Psalms reveal that he did. Deep. It's like, what's going on, God? I mean, what would you have done? Would you have said, hey, God's anointed me. Move over, Saul. Would you have done that? Or, or would you have done, uh, do, do you not know who I am? I'm the anointed one. I'm God's chosen one. David doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He's a man after God's own heart. What does he do? He chooses to trust God. He chooses to trust God. Now, recall, he had many opportunities to kill Saul. There's, there's, there's one incident where he, he goes into a cave, cuts a little bit, I think it's off of his beard, leaves the cave, and then across the, the valley or whatever, calls out to Saul. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Why are you pursuing me? I haven't done anything to you. David was be. You have to understand. You know, it's one thing to be pursued because you've done something bad. David didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong, and he's being pursued by this madman. And Saul was a madman. He was tormented by demonic spirits. And, and who was it that God used to calm him? It was David. Through what? Through his musical instrument. He would play. And the life that was in David, the life of God, would minister life to King Saul. What would King Saul do the next thing? Throw a spear at him. I mean, he's crazy. But David didn't retaliate. He didn't retaliate. You know what he was? He remembered God's many deliverances in his life. He remembered the lion. He remembered the bear. He remembered Goliath. And he was well, well acquainted with that happened because of God's mercy on my life. And what does he do? He puts his trust in God and how does it manifest? In patience. He's patient. Patience is how we battle the impulses 
for immediate gratification. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And it is a weapon that we use against the deeds of the flesh that bring destruction into our lives. He was patient. What about us? We who call ourselves Christians, do we trust in God's faithfulness toward us based on His past acts of kindness? And ultimately, the greatest act of kindness that God did toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do we find ourselves manipulating situations so that we might get our way? Do we deal in underhanded ways in our business? Do we slander another in order to get the upper hand? What do we do? Do you have a Saul in your life? Do you have someone who you've done nothing wrong against them and they want you out of their lives, they want you dead? Do you have someone who continuously brings pain and anguish into your life in such a way that you're going, I don't deserve this. And what are you doing with that? Is this person keeping you or is this thing keeping you from realizing your destiny God has for you? Do you realize, Christian, your destiny in the eyes of God is one thing. It's pretty simple, right? You shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And then everything else? School, career, marriage. That all takes a far second. God calls you to be like His Son. Christian. He calls you to follow in Jesus' footsteps. David chose God. He patiently waited for God to exalt him. To bring him into the realization of the Lord's promise. But in order to do that, it was what? It was a long road. It was painful. There was anguish. There was loneliness. There was suffering. But like Peter said when Jesus said, after Jesus said a hard saying, Jesus said, you guys want to leave too? And Peter's response needs to be ours. When, every, when it looks like everybody else is forsaking Christ, 
you, you know, your friends once were going to church with you, now they're not. Kids are, now they're not. But what's going on? It's like, well, if everybody else leaves, let them leave. I'm following you, Jesus. You're the only one who has the words of life. You know, today is the day of decisions, folks. You know. If all of you in here, and I love you guys, and some of you I've known for a long, long time, but if all of you in here, including my wife, chose to forsake Jesus, that would devastate me. But there's only one thing I would do. Just keep following Jesus. See, because none of us in here are ultimate. Death is not ultimate. God is ultimate. And everything all of us are looking for, we're only going to find it really in Him. The fact is, that is a spiritual warfare. Whose word are we ultimately going to trust? The word of a man or the word of the Creator. That, that really simplifies the issue. But that's the rock bottom. Are you going to follow Christ even though your family ridicules you? David repudiates pride in his thoughts. But you know what David does? He has a dependent disposition on God. He doesn't do this, but he does this. Verse 2 says, Surely, surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a winged child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Why do we have a difficult time trusting God? All of us. The core of that, I've already kind of said it, it's unbelief. We don't trust Him. We do not trust the two books that preach that the Creator God is there. We look at nature, we see it looks designed, and we say, oh no, it looks designed, but it's not. Number two, we read the Scriptures here and we ignore we ignore the demands by how we choose to live. And those choices reveal our unbelief. If you, if, you, if you stop and think about it for a moment, 
It is madness not to trust in the one who gives you breath and life and all good things to enjoy. There is that that's twisted, man. Yeah. I, I mean, I fall into that twistedness. And I know you do too. It's like there's a schizophrenia going on. He says this. Look at the fact of David's dependence. Surely I have composed and quieted myself. Now that word, surely, gives force to the contrast between what he was not doing, namely ignoring God, and now to give emphasis to what he is doing. I'm not going to think I'm all that. I know better. I'm going to submit to you. You are God and I am not. This term, I have stilled my soul, it is, means this, that He is now in a still and meditative state before the Lord within His soul, within His conscious being. And, and He has come to rest. He has come to rest. Be still and know that I am God. The world my power sustains. The sun, the moon, and stars above. My glory, their refrain. Be still and know that I am good. The sons of men behold. The care for creatures, large and small. My pleasures, there unfold. Be still and know that I am just. The weak and poor rescued. By awesome acts of power is that which I procure. When he is in his meditative state, he is not emptying his thoughts. He's not doing that. But he is considering Almighty God's person and wonders in history. That's what he's doing. Do you need to get away in a quiet place, Christian? So much noise. So many things to do. And you're just torn every which way. Do you need to do that? Do you need a quiet place in order to contemplate what good things the Lord has done for you. Do, do you need to do that? You feel empty? He has stilled his soul like a child. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. This is a picture of contentment in God. I mean, one of the most amazing things being a parent of a newborn is when you see them completely and totally content after they've been breastfed. They're just completely and totally... They're, they're, 
you look at them and you're just going, wow. You know, how many of us long for a good, long, deep night's sleep? I haven't had one for years. I haven't had one for years. When you look at a baby in, in, in its mother's arms, that's what you see. Complete and total contentment. Complete and total contentment. Consider Psalm uh, 116, 5-8, which definitely brings uh, David's troubled life into focus. Listen to this. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. David's profession is one that's radically God-centered, both in his thought life and in his actions. He is God-dependent. That's the rub. That's it. And when his soul submits to this reality, regardless of the situation in his life, the result is tranquility. It follows. Why? Because he is in the ark of God's care. He's in the ark of God's care. There's a flood all around, but he is safe. He's safe. His dependence is childlike. He's weathered the storms and has fixed his gaze on the God of heaven. And what does he do now? Now he gives an exhortation to Israel and really to us. David's exhortation is to trust in the Lord. Verse 3. He's essentially saying, do as I have done, people, my brothers, my friends. Do what I have done. Trust in Him. Well, how can you say that, man? Your life's, you know, you got a history of times where you weren't trusting in God at all. That's not the issue, is it? The issue is, trust in this Lord who is gracious, slow to anger, compassionate. Trust in Him who rescued Israel out of Egyptian bondage. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now that word hope here, it's not a pacifying wish that's an imagination. No. It is the solid ground of expectation for those who are gods that He will be faithful to them even when they aren't faithful to Him. If anything, that's what David's life teaches us. That God is faithful to His people even when His people aren't faithful to Him. Genesis 8.10 illustrates this hope where Noah sends out the dove to see if the waters subsided. He's looking, he's looking. Well, eventually, dove never came back. This term hope has to do with persevering expectation. And you know what's in view here? Patience. Patience. We're time-bound. 
We, we, we are, um, especially city dwellers, most of us are city dwellers, um, boy, immediate gratification and instantaneously getting what we want, looking at what we want, hearing what we want, is something that comes to us so easily that it really keeps this fruit of the Spirit, this characteristic of, uh, of, of one who is trusting in God, patience, it really keeps us from a lot of peace that is our heritage as God's people. Don't cast away your confidence in the Lord. The one that is self-existent. The one who never changes. I mean, think about this. All of our lives are in constant change. Constant change. Our age, our health, our marital status, our work, our living situation. The one constant, the only constant, is the God of heaven and earth. That's the only constant. Why are you looking for a constant in that which is created? It can't be a constant. It is finite. Why do we do that? What the heck is up with that? That's madness. And God deliver us from it. Because we all got to deal with it. I got to deal with it. Oh my gosh. Do I have to deal with it? It stares at me every day in the mirror. Every single day I got to deal with it. Every single moment I got to deal with it. And so do you. For how long do we hope in the Lord? What's the duration? I only got, you know, I got this five-year plan, God. Just toss it, dude. Just Both now and forevermore. You know what that means? Every moment, every day, you put your trust in Him. And the plans you've had for your life, and you see things just falling into the trash, you keep your eyes on Him. You keep your eyes on Him. You remember that you are ever before the gaze of God. His gaze is always on you. You are not alone. To trust in the Lord like a child, what is it? It is to recognize that He is God and we are not. It's understanding that we owe Him the very breath we breathe. It's ultimately coming to bend the knee to David's shepherd who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's the son of David. He is the second person of the triune God. 
He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the Lamb of God that alone atones for our sins. He's the one who alone conquered the grave. He's the high priest who ever lives to make intercession for his own. He's the prophet Moses spoke of that to ignore his words equals embracing death. He's the true king who is coming back in the clouds with glory and power to judge the living and the dead. He is the judge that will wage war against the nations who hate him. He's the one who says to burden-broken souls, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He's it, and there are no other saviors. The God of Scripture is not pluralistic. Very un-American. The God of Scripture, of, uh, of the Scripture is a benevolent despot. He is an absolute sovereign. And we do not invent Him and we do not tell Him what to do. He tells us what to do. And to resist Him is to say, I'll absorb your wrath. That's fine. But to bend the knee to Jesus is to say like Thomas, my Lord and my God. And my question is this, is your soul weird and bruised? If so, come to Jesus. Is your strength sapped from life's hardships? Come to Jesus. Have you strayed in your heart from God? If so, come to Jesus. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? If not, He waits with open arms. Today is the day of salvation, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Judgment is coming. Lord, we thank You that forever Your Word is settled in heaven. In this book that You've given to us, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself through the people of Israel, ultimately in Your Son Christ Jesus of Nazareth, in the fullness of time, through the writings of the, the apostles and prophets. And You call us to Yourself. Oh Lord, I ask that today, we would not be proud and haughty in the way we think, in the way we live, but we would, like David, like the child that's been weaned, find our contentment in You, that we would still our souls and know that You are God. We are not. And Lord, would You, would you please...
please deliver us from self-reliance, from the sin of unbelief that says, I don't need Jesus today. Both for those who are yours and those who are not. Lord, I ask that today would be the day that there is a marked change in our souls. A dependence on You that we could say, you know, this day something happened. Something happened. The Spirit of God through the Word of God by the power of God the light came on. And I ask, Lord, that You would do that. Do that, Lord, I pray. Be merciful to us, O God. In Your name I pray, Lord. Amen.